Amen. Amen. All right, let's go Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, grab one real quick. It's okay to run off and grab it if you need to. I I happen to think that's okay. And you're at home, so like nobody's watching you right now. Nobody's going to judge you. So just go get it. All right? Uh, But we're going to put the text up on your screen in just a little bit. Uh, But man, there's just something extra special that God seems to do uh, when you're holding his word in your own hands as it's being declared. I think he uses that in a special way. And so uh, if you have a Bible, grab that real fast. Uh, If you don't have a Bible of your very own, uh, give me a phone call this week, write me an email, whatever. I would love to try to fix that and maybe we can do something about it. I don't know. Um, So we started a brand new series last Sunday, Palm Sunday, uh, that has not only been the focus of uh, all of our efforts this week, all this Holy Week, uh, but it's going to be our focus uh, for the next couple of months in the future. Uh, And so it's going to be this thing that we're uh, paying attention to, focusing our attention to, and we're calling this series, The Gospel is a Blank. And the, the, the gist is that we're going to fill in that blank with a different word or, or a different phrase each single week. Uh, the, the reason that we're doing this series like this is because, man, I really think, it's my personal opinion, and I may be wrong, but I really think that one of the best ways to illustrate what the gospel is is to talk about it like a diamond. And everybody's seen a diamond, right? Uh, whether it's one on your own finger, or maybe you've only seen, ever seen one on TV or in a jewelry case at a store that you can't actually spend money at. Right? Uh, everybody's seen a diamond. Maybe it's just on a cartoon. That's, that's kind of the picture that I get in my head. Right? Uh, but a diamond is this lovely, valuable thing uh, that, that you can look at it from all of these different angles. And, and in fact, the best way to kind of admire a diamond is just start spinning that sucker around and going, have you seen it from this angle? Have you seen it from this this angle. Look how the light touches it when you kind of tilt it this way. And and that's kind of how we treat a diamond. It's the good and right way to treat a diamond. And the gospel is actually kind of the same way. Uh, There are multiple facets, multiple angles that that you can and you should, I think, admire the gospel from. All these different vantage points. Have you seen the gospel from this angle? Ah, wait, wait, wait. Look how the light catches it when you see the gospel from this angle. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it lovely? As, as, as we, we should pick up the gospel and rotate it around and behold this incredible jewel that God has given us. And each facet, each face is incredibly important because it's a part of a larger singular whole. It's a part of this larger singular special jewel. And so last Sunday... Palm Sunday, right? We kicked off this this series by celebrating that that the gospel is a promised reality, a promised reality. We looked at at what we called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He he rides uh, victoriously down the hill into the city of God. And, and we pointed to, to all of these Old Testament passages, and we talked about how Jesus and his actions in that moment are a fulfillment of a work that God began long before that moment. In fact, long before even the Old Testament, we could say that it was a fulfillment of a work that God began even before the fall in the garden. Jesus wasn't just making stuff up as he went. He wasn't trying to feel his way through Holy Week. No, no, no. Uh, Every single step along the pathway was an intentional plan that existed long before you and me could ever pay attention to it. Jesus wasn't just making this stuff up. He was the yes and the amen to every single one of God's promises. The sovereign king was and is in control of all things. 
And then Friday night, a couple nights ago, Good Friday, we looked at what he did with that sovereignty. How he acted on that sovereignty. We talked about how the gospel isn't just a promised reality. Yes, it is that. But it's also, at the very same time, spin that diamond around and look at a different facet. It's at the very same time a narrative, a story. It's a story with real people in a real place at a real moment in history. Something eternally significant occurred in that moment. The one who is owed all glory and honor forever and ever, amen, took on the form of a servant and was obedient to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. He willingly, and the Bible is clear about this, he joyfully, laid down his own life to save a people for himself, to save you. He died on the cross as a substitute to reconcile you to God. To reconcile. And then earlier this morning, maybe you got up and were surprised by a little sunrise celebration. This morning we got to continue that real story by watching him burst forth from the grave forever defeating sin and death. And because he was raised, we too had the promise of resurrection life. But the diamond yet has more facets to admire, and so we get to keep spinning this thing around. So, so what angle do we get to behold God's lovely jewel from this morning? The gospel is a transaction. A transaction. So what, what do you normally think of when you, when you think of a transaction, right? You think about going to the store, right? All right. Uh, it may have been a while since uh, many of you have gone to a grocery store or any other kind of store, any kind of retail store. Or maybe if you have, it's just been weird lately, right? Like, every, like going to a store right now is an incredible ordeal and you kind of don't want to do it. And I think that's by design, all right? Uh, but just imagine yourself in a normal situation. So it's like close your eyes for a second and picture that in your head. Uh, just imagine the scenario. Oh, what a glorious day that will be when my target I shall see, right? right? Uh, it's going to be a good day. You walk in, you grab your buggy, or, or maybe I should translate for the New Englanders, a, a shopping cart, all right? Those are, diff those are the same thing. It's just further proof that Texans have way more fun in the world, all right? But anyways, all right, so you grab your shopping cart and you slowly meander each and every one of those aisles. You look at every single thing. You pick it up and you inspect it. Why? Because this is a post-COVID-19 imagination and you get to do whatever the heck you want, right? Nobody can slow you down. Nobody can stop you. Nobody's stopping you at the door and count with a counter, right? But you take your sweet time, you look at every single thing, you finally grab the items that you came to get, and because it's Target, $60 worth of stuff that you didn't come to get, all right? And, and then you, what do you do after that? You head to the checkout line, right? You go to pay for your stuff. Now, if you were to run out of the store in that moment without paying for your stuff, some high school kid in a red t-shirt is going to come tackle you, Right? And there's a good reason for that. It's because you are a thief. It doesn't matter how long that stuff has been in your buggy. You could have been hanging out in the store all day long. It doesn't matter. Until you pay for the items, they don't belong to you. They're not yours yet. All right? You've got to give something over. Whether you hand over cash or you swipe a credit card or you tap that thing with Apple Pay, it doesn't matter. That stuff does not belong to you until you've exchanged something of value for it. 
And in a world of digital money, we might have lost sight of this, but, but a transaction is just a fancy word for a trade. That, that's all it is. You've got something I want, I've got something you want, so let's work out a swap here. That's all a trade is. More civilized societies may have figured out how to speed that process up with banknotes or computers talking to each other, but every single transaction in all of history has been a trade of some sorts. And most of the time, most of the time, those trades are fair, right? And they need to be. Like, like you, a society has an interest in protecting people's trust in fair trading. You don't want to live in a place where, where uh, you are constantly being taken advantage of. You get out of that place pretty quickly, right? So trades are normally fair. People come to terms. People come to agreement. But sometimes, guys, sometimes trades are incredibly unfair, right? Incredibly unfair. Just ask any kid on a playground. who has been the victim of some bad trades before. I know I was. I was the perpetrator in some bad trades growing up. This also takes place in the sports world, right? Ask any Bruins fan how they really feel about the Tyler Sagan trade, all right? We're seven years from, removed from that, and I still hear Boston people chirp about that every once in a while, all right? The stars are doing well. Um, but listen, like, despite whatever playground or sports story you might have you can point to, th- there is one trade. There is one transaction that takes unfair into cosmic proportions. Cosmic proportions. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Colossae. Colossae was in Asia Minor. He writes, there's a church there. He writes this letter to them. There was a a theological error that had crept into the church. A a group of people showed up and and started teaching that, well, uh, that there was this higher plane of spiritual uh, spiritual enlightenment, spiritual living that they could all attain if they just did a couple of things. If they practiced certain asceticisms and if they started praying to these angelic modern moderator beings instead of Jesus because, you know, Jesus is God and he's kind of busy. Like, that's kind of how things are playing out. And so, um, bad theology snuck into this young church as a complete rejection of the gospel, even while it called itself the gospel, which is certainly something that never happens in our day and age, right? Ever at, at all? Unless, you know, there's, there really is nothing new under the sun. Yeah, it happens in our world all the time. Things get called the gospel that don't look anything at all like the gospel. But anyways, Paul loves this church, and man, he ain't having it. He's not going to let them get away with this. He's going to shut this down, and so he writes this letter to correct them. He writes this letter to, to point them back to Jesus, to point them to what he has done and why, specifically why, what Jesus has done is enough. They don't need aestheticism and they don't need some made-up angelic mediators. They've got Jesus and Jesus has it covered because, well, you know, he's Jesus. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need help from you. He doesn't need help from some mediator. He's got it. He's okay. And so Colossians, in a nutshell is don't look at these other things, look at Jesus. That's what Paul is saying, and, and we'll, we'll definitely end up studying this letter together one of these days, but and for time's sake this morning, we're going to pick it up in the very middle of a paragraph, and so we can look at something specific. Join me in, in Colossians 2, verse 13. Colossians 2, 
starting in verse 13. He says this, And you who were dead in, the, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Okay, so let's call a time out there for a second. Uh, if you've been around our church for a while, you'll recognize that language as familiar, right? Uh, this idea of being dead, of being spiritually dead in our sins is something that was written elsewhere by the Apostle Paul in the, the book of Ephesians, a letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus, a letter that we've studied in here before. It's also a letter that we think that Paul wrote at the exact same time as he wrote this letter, all right? And so Ephesians and Colossians come from Paul and are sent to Asia uh, at the same time that he writes them, or he writes them at the same time and sends them with the same messenger. We can say it that way. Right? And so he says there in Ephesians that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And the consistent idea in both of these locations, in both of these letters, is that dead people don't do anything. They're incapable of fixing their problem. Dead men cannot, cannot fix their situation. Dead men are powerless. They're not just weak, they are lifeless. They need a rescuer outside of themselves to act upon them. I mean, just picture in your head, what, what do you think of when you think CPR? What do you think of when you hear about somebody having a defibrillator used on them, right? Right? Those are, those are images of somebody else stepping in. You're not James Bond doing it to yourself. You need someone else to act upon you and rescue you. And guys, this is even more true spiritually. The Bible teaches that we are separated from God because of our sin. That we are spiritually dead. And that we are completely unable to do anything about our situation. Completely unable. But unless you hear me saying the wrong thing, let me clarify. We aren't victims here. We're not victims. Paul says that you are dead in your trespasses. That word's important. A trespass is a willing and a defiant step across a known line. You knew where the boundary was, and you went past it willingly. So not only does the Bible teach that we are dead in our sins, but the Bible also teaches that we've done this to ourselves. We're not the victim here. We're the perpetrator. To say it a little more forcefully, we're cosmic traitors. We removed God from his throne and exalted ourselves. Or we could say it this way, we have, we have defied and usurped the good, wise, creator, king. Oh, uh, yeah, but, but, but like God, he's, he, he's, he's, he's understanding, right? He's good, and, and, he, and he's loving, and, and he's really merciful, I've heard. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I'm, yes, yep, I, I'm in a bad place, but like, isn't God like required to, to, to do something about my problem? Because he's God, right? I really like that guy. Please? But Paul says here that, that we're also uncircumcised in our flesh. Circumcision was a physical marking in the Old Testament of God's covenant with his people. It was a sign, a physical sign on their bodies to show that God had made promises to them and that he was going to be faithful to complete those promises. He was going to fulfill those promises. But that was the Jews. That was the Jews. He made a commitment to them in spite of them. He, the reality is that he doesn't owe you or me anything. 
He doesn't owe me anything. At least not by default. And so in half of a verse, in only half of a verse, Paul makes it explicitly clear that left to our own devices, we are far from God because of sin, and we rightly deserve his, his wrath. It's owed to us. Happy Easter, everybody! Oh, but thank God there's a second half to verse 13. There's a second half to verse 13. Let's read it again. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, comma, he keeps going, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Okay, so we are separated from God uh, by default, and we deserve to remain uh, relationally separated from him forever. We are spiritually dead, and yet, and yet, in his goodness... In his great love, in his mercy, God made you alive. Alive. Something that you and I cannot do on our own. But listen, God very much can. Yeah, yeah, he can. You were dead, but he made you alive. But listen, not simply alive, not merely alive. Paul says that you were made alive, quote, in him. So hear me. God does not save you to neutrality. Follower of Jesus, you do not move from enemy of God to merely a nameless non-combatant. We are saved to something. We are saved to an active relationship with the one that, let's be honest, we all deeply wronged. In other words, he gives us himself to know and be known, to love and be loved. And how in the world does he do that? Paul says that all of our trespasses have been forgiven. Forgiven. Forgiven is a word in our culture that I think carries a lot of confusion. It's far from the only word that gets that treatment, but forgiven is definitely, definitely one of them. All right. Uh, it, it's this word that gets all kinds of confusion in our culture, but um, I, I think many people uh, kind of see it or kind of understand the idea of forgiveness as kind of a synonym of ignore, right? Just kind of a synonym of ignore, to overlook something and just kind of kind of act like it's not there, right? Pretend like it's off in the co- over in the corner, sweep it under the rug maybe a little bit if you got one, right? But just kind of act like it's not there. But the way Paul uses it here in Colossians 2, it's kind of more akin to a banking term. A banking term. It carries the idea of an active, intentional generosity. So how do we know that? Well, because verse 13 ends with a comma, the sentence keeps going in verse 14, so let's read it again. Bearing with one another, uh, that's the wrong chapter, verse Chapter 2, verse 13, and you who were raised, who raised him from, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, so in this moment, Paul is not talking about overlooking something. Not at all. He's talking about something being paid in full. 
And there's two pictures here that we need to kind of wrap our heads around in order to properly understand this idea. The first idea is that of of a canceled debt. So we have a political culture right now that often uses this term incorrectly, I think. It's simply as a, as a taking of an eraser and a writing in of a zero where the debt formerly was. Um, one, that's not how debt actually works. But two, that's not at all what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about is actually one of these. All right? All its glorious 1990s printer paper. Um, there's an immediate divide over those who are watching this to understand what this thing is. Um, everybody older than me right now actually might still be using one of these things if you have a house mortgage or something like that, or maybe you took out a substantial loan at one point. Uh, everybody my generation and down has no idea what these things are and has probably never held one. This is called a loan payment coupon book. Um, so in ye olden days, all right, uh, when you took out a loan, a bank would give you one of these guys, uh, and inside is a coupon for every single one of the loan payments that you're supposed to make. And so every month, when you write your check, you rip one of these guys out, and you mail it into the bank with your check. And so uh, as you had a record of all of your loan payments, and so as you worked yourself down, this book would get thinner and thinner and thinner, and then finally you got this, this glorious day where you got to tear out the the very last coupon. It was a good and right celebration because that meant that your loan was paid off. You didn't owe any money anymore, right? Now, pull this idea into the spiritual domain. The picture that the Bible paints is that your loan coupon book has an infinite number of pages. An infinite number of pages. You, You cannot pay down the debt that you owe to God. Dave Ramsey cannot help you here. You're in a lot of trouble. But the picture that Paul is using here in Colossians... The picture that Paul is using here is one that that says that God takes your loan book from you, yanks it out of your hand, and nails it to something. He nails it to something. And that's the second picture that we've got to unfold in verse 14. He doesn't just nail it to anything. He says he nails it to the cross of Jesus, an execution tool. So, So why is that significant? Well, because in the Roman Empire, that's precisely where they would list all of your indictments as they put you to death. They nail it to the stake. It was a grand showing to the public of this is why you toe the line and obey our rules. Because he broke this law, this is what he gets for it. If you're familiar with the crucifixion narrative, we we read it Friday night, right? If you're familiar with the crucifixion narrative, you already know what was on Jesus' indictment. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Paul here, he tells us that God the Father put his own indictment on the cross. He had an indictment too. He he nailed an indictment to the cross, the complete and full debt of your sin, of my sin. Through his suffering, through his death, our, our debt is paid in full. And look what he says next in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what does that mean? It means that no one, absolutely no one, gets to go, well, yeah, but. 
I, I know he did that, but I've got some, some of my own things. I've got some of my own grievances to bring up here. Yeah, but any and all claims on you because of your sin are heretofore null and void. A transaction has made, been made. The spiritual authorities have been disarmed. They cannot hurt you. They have been triumphed over. They are forever defeated and they have been put to open shame. The good king is publicly victorious. We exchanged, traded our sin debt and it is forever something that can no longer bring us penalty or condemnation. Jesus joyfully took it all. Every ounce of it. But transactions always have two sides, right? They always have two sides. In a trade, you give something up, but you also get something in return. So, so if Jesus took our sin, if Jesus took the penalty owed to us, well, what do we get back from Jesus? What do we get in return? Well, in starting in verse 16, Paul's going to begin to flesh some of that out. He says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or in, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 20, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, uh, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, refer into things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So listen, I know that that's a really long section. I know there's a lot in there to unpack, and one of these days we're going to get to do that. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right? But what's the gist of what Paul is saying here? He's saying that because you belong to Jesus, you are clothed in his righteousness. And if you are clothed in his righteousness, there's absolutely zero need at all for you to bring anything else to the table. You don't need asceticism. What could you ever bring in an earthly way that he has not already given you? You don't need some angelic mediator. You have Jesus himself. You don't need this. You don't need that. Follower of Jesus, any attempt to try and impress God with an earthly righteousness is really just a clear indication that you have no idea what he's already given you. Jesus is perfect righteousness. His perfect righteousness. Oh, guys, this is the most unfair trade in the history of trades. Most unfair trade. Jesus takes your sin and the penalty for that sin. Jesus gives you his own righteousness. It's an incredibly unfair trade. But listen, it's not because Jesus didn't see all the angles. It's not because he was some kid on the playground who didn't understand what he was walking into. Jesus saw all the angles. He, he is good. Because it's because he loves you with a great love and he is mighty to save. Mighty. 
And while a desire to look more and more like our king will definitely lead us to live in certain ways, he neither needs nor is he asking you to bring anything of your own making to him. Church family, the gospel, the cosmic trade to take from you your death and instead give you life, the gospel is a transaction. It's a transaction that our good God made joyfully and willingly without hesitation. So spin that diamond just a little bit this week and marvel again at its beauty. As we celebrate this morning the death and resurrection that purchased your own. And forever reconciled you to God. Press deeply into his goodness and press deeply into his great love for you. And if you're, if you're watching this right now and you're already a follower of Jesus, that's your response today. Lean into what God reveals about himself in Colossians 2. Every, every week we talk about the need to respond to God's proclaimed word. That's, that's your response today if you know him. Lean into what he tells us about himself in Colossians 2. I mean, think for a moment, just a second, how great your debt was. Dwell on it. Chew on it for a second. Oh, and then, and then celebrate his astounding goodness to you. His astounding goodness. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time for you to put action to that response. Use that time for your good. Uh, maybe, maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you need to respond by uh, being obedient in baptism. Or maybe you need to respond by uh, joining this church family. Or maybe you need to respond by saying yes to the call of missions that he's laying out in front of you. All of those are on the table. And so let's talk about what that next step is. Give me a call this week. Email me this week. I'd love to walk you through those actions of response. If you're watching this this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, I'm glad you're here. Seriously. But listen, I don't think for one second that that's an accident. I think God's using this. I think he's working in you. Listen, you can respond to God's word this morning too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. You do that by meeting Jesus, your, your sin, it separates you from God. The, the wages of it are death itself. But Jesus came and Jesus died and then Jesus rose again to save you from that sin and to forever reconcile you to God, forever reconcile you to himself. And so now as the good and conquering king, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. Repentance is the Bible's word, for turning from your sin and turning to Jesus. Faith is the Bible's word for placing your trust in him to save you as Lord. That's, that's all those words are, and you can respond to that call this morning. Yeah, even through a screen. Our God is big. Our God is good. He is working all things. All right? He's not daunted by this. He's not slowed down by this. He's right there with you at this moment. So call on him. Normally I'd be down front here calling people to come forward, but we, we can't do that this week. But that doesn't mean we can't talk. And I'd love to walk you through what that response of faith looks like. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing.
Let's all respond to God's word however he's calling us to this morning. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Colossians. Thank you for a letter that tells us that Jesus is good and Jesus is enough. God, as we celebrate in a special way today that you defeated death. Oh, may we celebrate well. And the truth is, every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday. There's a reason we celebrate on this specific day of the week. Oh, but you've given us special seasons on the calendar that we can press in in special ways. And so, God, would you help us celebrate well today, whether, whether it, whatever we got going on after this. But God, for, for those who, who know you in here, who are watching this, would you, would you call us to repentance? Would you call us to humility? And would you ground us, give us rest in your gospel promises? Would you help us see that you willingly and lovingly and joyfully took our sin and gave us life, gave us righteousness. Oh, will we rest in that righteousness this morning? Instead of trying to achieve something for you, you don't need that, you don't want that. She calls to rest. For, Father, for those in here, who are watching that don't, don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this very moment? Would you open eyes to see? Would you open ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you call people to yourself and into your kingdom this morning? As we close out our time and celebrate in a big way, would you save people for the glory of your name right now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.